We'll hear argument next to number 96491, Intermodal Rail Employees Association versus the Santa Fe Railway. Mr. Schwartz, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the railroad workers who are the petitioner in this case have been denied their day in court by the dismissal of their petition in the district court. This case presents, and they've pleaded, a unique, egregious conspiracy to deprive a particular group of employees of their welfare plan benefits. They've pleaded specific intent to commit acts prohibited by Section 510 of ERISA. They have pleaded, and their case involves the use of deceit leading to coercion used to implement this sham transaction. The conduct pleaded fits squarely within the congressional intent in the enactment of Section 510. The railroad workers here have pleaded a conspiracy to interfere with the specificity sufficient to comply even with Rule 9 of the Federal Civil Procedure. Mr. Schwartz, is it true that this employer could not use the change route that you say could have been used to accomplish this purpose? That is, these benefits do not vest, therefore the plan could be amended to reduce them. The benefits could be terminated. Justice Ginsburg, these benefits were contractually vested as part of a nationwide multi-employer bargaining pattern with the Teamsters Union. The answer to my question is there was no amendment route here because it was a multi-employer plan. Therefore, suppose an employer wants to accomplish that objective just as a matter of cutting costs. You're saying it's impossible. It would be possible only if they were willing and able to go back and bargain for a change in the contractually agreed benefits and then pursuant to that make the necessary amendments. But the same thing that you're calling a conspiracy and could have been done was this only a single employer plan as distinguished from a multi-employer plan. I do not believe that's correct because we're still dealing with the element of the contractual vesting of the benefits, Justice Ginsburg. Mr. Schwartz, some of us are having difficulty in hearing you. Could you speak up a little more? Certainly, Mr. Chief Justice, I will attempt to. Now, if there were no union agreement, the law clearly allows the employer to just get rid of these welfare benefits under the plan. Is that true? Provided that there is appropriate compliance with the amendment procedures, yes. And the problem here is that there is a union agreement under the terms of which the employer must provide these benefits. Is that the problem? That's certainly an element in our contention that they could not legally have gone about doing this had they not resorted to this subject. Well, they could have legally done it for purposes of the ERISA statute, but in so doing would have violated the union agreement. 
they would have run afoul. Is that right? Yes. Well, then you're saying, in effect, that they could do, in a, in a, with a single employer plan, no contrary collective bargaining agreement, they could do in two steps what you're saying they can't do in one step here. Because, number one, they could simply eliminate the benefits. And having eliminated the benefits, they could then eliminate their division or fire all those employees who had been getting the benefits. And, and so the, 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 the different, it seems to me that your argument is a very formalistic argument. Justice Souter, I, I believe that uh, we need to make a, a proviso, and I believe that the government may talk about this. Um, there is some basis, I believe, for um, the, the opinion that even plan amendments can't be made without, uh, when they're done for a specific discriminatory purpose. I'm not prepared to carry Well, but why is it a discriminatory purpose simply to say, uh, I'm, I'm, you, you know that they can be eliminated, period, can't they? And they're, they're costing me too much. There's no collective bargaining agreement that I would violate. Uh, there's, there's no multi-employer plan, so I have autonomy here. Uh, and I'm, I'm simply going to eliminate them. That they can do as a general proposition. As a, as a general proposition, yes. All right. Uh, and, and what then, if they can do that, why does it then become discriminatory when having eliminated those benefits, they say, I probably would be better off to have an outside company doing this work, so I will eliminate the employees too. How does that suddenly turn the prior action into a discriminatory one? We're dealing with a situation here, uh, what is generally called a fire and hire situation. They wanted to keep these employees, they're highly trained and productive, but they wanted to keep them without the benefits, and therefore they had to go through this elaborate yeah, but they, on, on your theory, I guess they didn't. All they had to do was to say there won't be any more benefits. Well, I, I, I think it's a great deal more complicated than that to make the necessary plan amendments. In making plan amendments, they incur consequences with their own workforce. But if they want to go to the United the, Oh, that, you're, you're quite right. There's a, there's a countervailing sort of political consideration within the marketplace because you then end up with a bunch of employees who are mad. But if, if as a matter of law, they want to accept that burden, they can, the, the employer could do that and couldn't have, could have done it here, I take it. Is that right? Certainly. We, I, I do not think it's correct that the employer here could have done it uh, without modification of their contract. All right, because you had a CBA. Yes, yes. That's absolutely correct. May I, may I ask this question? I understood you to say earlier in your presentation that the rights at stake here had already vested, which puzzles me because you're relying on a statute that talks about being losing, being discharged in order to prevent a right from becoming vested or attainment. So Justice Stevens. Which, which, is, which is your view? Are the rights vested or not? We believe that the rights are contractually vested for the duration of the collective bargaining agreement. This was a multi-vested in an unusual sense. Yeah, yeah. If you had a vested right, why don't you just sue to recover that right? You don't need the statute, it seems to me, to recover, uh, to, uh, to get compensation for the destruction of a vested right. The statute is designed to prevent discharge in order to avoid vesting. And I'm not quite clear exactly what your position is on that. The, the position is that they were vested for a limited period under the terms of the CBA, Justice Stevens. Uh, give me an example of a particular individual who had a vested right and is not able to just sue for that right without re relying on the statute. Maybe he'd gone to the dentist and ran up a dental bill or something, he had the right to have it paid. Is it that sort of thing you're saying? Or well, the right in the future, if he wants to go to the dentist, it will be paid? Uh, 
It's important to understand that within the context of the CBA, of course, we're dealing with Section 301. We're dealing with a lot of elaborate grievance and arbitration machinery as exclusive remedies. Uh, we're also dealing here with a bankrupt Teamsters local that was not able to carry those burdens. Mr. Schwartz, the, the question presented in your petition for certiorari is based entirely, as I would read the question, on Section 510 of ERISA. And that certainly was the basis for the Ninth Circuit's decision. Uh, and uh, some of my colleagues, uh, I think, are expressing the view, what has the collective bargaining agreement and all that got to do with it if you're claiming under Section 510? We are claiming exclusively under Section 510. We believe the collective bargaining agreement, Mr. Chief Justice, is important in terms of understanding the context in which it arose. And the, that, that, those are kind of weasel words. The important in understanding the context in which it arose. If it's based on 510, well, tell me specifically, if you would, what the collective bargaining agreement has to do with it. I believe the collective bargaining agreement has to do with evaluating the respondents' arguments relating to targeting their claim for judicially grafted exception to Section 510. Well, I, as I read the respondents' brief, they no longer uh, support the reasoning of the Ninth Circuit in that respect, or at least they say you don't have to read the Ninth Circuit opinion in that view. Our understanding is that they no longer uh, support the Ninth Circuit's rationale for the decision in the case. You mentioned something about the bankrupt Teamsters Union, and as I understand it, both the old employer, um, the Santa Fe Group, and the new employer, the ITS, both were units that had Teamsters um, representing the workers. Is that not so? These workers, in large part, were given a last-minute opportunity to apply for reemployment with the substitute employer, respond uh, internal services. Um, the Teamsters Union signed them to a contract with greatly reduced benefits. Is the same? Was it the same local in both cases? Yes, uh, Justice Ginsburg, it was. And the, and the union has not taken any position throughout these proceedings, these 510 proceedings? None whatsoever. Strange when you, you, whether for background or whatever reason, talk about labor law rights and the union has not been heard from. I, I, I believe it has to do with the internal Teamster struggles uh, locally in, in Los Angeles and nationally, Justice Ginsburg. Well, what health and welfare benefits were actually reduced as a result of the restructuring of the work at the, Hobart Yard? The health insurance coverage was dramatically reduced. Okay, but not for any coverage for things that had already occurred. You're, we're talking about future benefit opportunities. Uh, Is that what we're talking about? It, it, it occurred within a matter of, of a space of less than two weeks, uh, Justice O'Connor. But we so, aren't talking time. about people who had incurred an injury and uh, wanted medical benefits. We're talking about people who might in the future incur injuries or illness and need medical benefits. We, were, uh, Justice O'Connor, we're talking about people who enjoyed for a period of at least one year longer before the implementation of this transaction 
on ongoing coverage of entire medical care. They had health insurance, but we're not talking about people who had gotten sick and incurred medical bills already, and then they weren't paid. We're talking about future opportunities. As far as we are aware, the, the multi-employer health plan, which was administered principally by the union mm -hmm. management group, mm -hmm. continued to pay properly accrued claims up until the date of implementation. So we are talking about uh, future opportunities for health care. In addition, Justice O'Connor, we're dealing with a loss of uh, uh, vacation pay, a loss of sick pay, and the welfare care. But not, not vacation pay that had already been an obligation to pay, just future vacation pay. It's a reduction in the amount of vacation pay that would be paid in the future rather than cutting off uh, some that had already been earned. Is that correct? Uh, kind of the Teamsters contract is extremely elusive. Uh, what is your answer? The Teamsters contract uh, uh, is, is extremely elusive because uh, they went from the nationally bargained Teamster contract to what is known as a white paper contract, which is a very short, specifically focused contract. We're with trying to talk about Section 510, though. We're not trying to talk to you about the union contract because the claim is made under Section 510 of ERISA, and, and that's what we're trying to find out from you. And how to how to make it fit under Section 510 of ERISA? Well, we think your claim, that is. Justice, uh, well, kind of, we think it's, it's it's from the plain language and the underlying legislative history and the purpose of Congress in enacting ERISA that the second clause of Section 510 covers this uh, this, this situation precisely. The language interference with the attainment of the right to which a participant may become entitled. But the, wouldn't you say attainment, though, suggested something that was to be to happen in the future? Yes, but it doesn't necessarily imply vesting. And in, in, this, situ in, in this particular situation, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, we had a situation where people expected that if their children had doctor appointments in April or May, they would be covered under the Teamsters plan. Uh, if they needed to go in for a previously scheduled operation in June, that would have been covered prior to March 19th when people were suddenly informed that they were going to have the opportunity of a new employer on April 1st. But I, I suppose the employer's argument is that uh, if, if something had not been attained as of the date this action was taken, uh, it, it didn't violate that section, Section 510. I uh, hesitate to speak for Mr. Holtower, but it's our understanding with their, I believe they have essentially uh, conceded and would no longer take the position that the welfare, health and welfare benefits such as those involved here are uh, not covered by the second clause of 510. I think that's apparent uh, throughout their brief. No, I, I understood their argument to focus more on the, on the, on the phrase that, uh, accompanying the word attainment. Uh, I, I, what we find is the, the more interesting and, and perhaps troublesome issues deal more with their arguments relating to targeting, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, clearly, uh, may attainment and may become entitled indicate some element of futurity, certainly. I mean, yeah, so supposing you've been working at a place 11 months and you don't get medical benefits until you've been there for a year, it seems to me that would fit very nicely under the attainment clause. You're fired at the end of 11 months because the employer doesn't want you to get, to get medical benefit. But th that really isn't this case, is it? No, it's not, because here it, would, it might be the case if you were working at that hypothetical employer under a contract 
that had another year and another 13 months to go instead of being a will employee. Can I ask you one hypothetical question? Supposing there's no union agreement or anything involved, but an employer finds out that a segment of his, his workforce performing one specific task, they, they're entitled to health, health, and health benefits. And they find out that if they subcontracted all that work out to others, they would save the cost of those benefits. And they decide that's the reason they want to cha make that change, and they do it. Have they violated the statute? Uh, I believe that's, uh, they, they have, uh, Mr. Justice Stevens, and I, I believe that. That's pretty much what occurred here. The railroad targeted the one group in the entire rail yard that was dealing with, that was covered by ERISA protective benefits rather than living under the, exclusively under the railroad retirement plans. But you would, you would say, I take it, that if there had been further reasons, in addition merely to the cost of providing these benefits, for wanting to get rid of this division and contract out, that, 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 that the existence of those further reasons, say they were, they happened to have a bunch of very inefficient employees and so on, uh, the, the existence of those further reasons uh, would, uh, would, would uh, uh, preclude a violation of the statute. I think it's possible to draw a bright line distinction between legitimate efficiencies versus mere benefits, from, uh, gains from the avoidance of benefits. Well, it is in theory, although it would be difficult in practice, because if, if you concede and if we were to hold that so long as the avoidance of the medical, the cost of, of welfare benefits was only one among other reasons that that would be legitimate, then every employer uh, who wanted to do what this employer did would simply claim other reasons. So it would, it would be difficult of proof, even though in theory there would be a bright line. Uh, certainly, I believe that the court needs to be extremely careful not to open the floodgates to circumvention of the statute, yes. No, but I mean, if you, don't you open, the, I don't know whether it's a floodgate or not, but don't you open the gate by conceding that if there are other reasons in addition to the ones given by the employer here, there wouldn't necessarily be any violation of the statute? I suppose we would get into the shifting burden analysis and whether the other reasons yeah. given are pretextual. No, but I just want to make sure I understand your argument. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought you would, I thought you would concede at that. That if... If, the, if there is a generalized desire to save money or to get more efficient work, work done more efficiently, and the desire to save money on the welfare plan is only one component among several others that add up to the reasons for wanting to make this change, I thought you conceded that under those circumstances the employer could do what this employer did and it would not violate the statute. Am, am I wrong? Justice Souter, I, I, if I gave that impression, I, I regret that I, uh, I spoke in error. I believe okay. that okay. simply the identification of another, one or more uh, purported efficiencies is not sufficient. I believe that the court... Oh, well, well let's, but, uh, let's assume it's, it's, it's at least real. Forget the question of proof now. Let's just assume that there are these other reasons. But among them, one among them, uh, is the desire to save the cost of the, the welfare plan. Does, does, uh, and the, so the employer eliminates the division contracts out. Does that violate the statute? We would submit that in that situation, the focus must and should be on whether or not the cost savings reflect substantially more than the gains. Of course, I thought your position was this is a pleading case. And you did allege the employer did this for the specific purpose of. And if that's, if this is a determination to be made on the face of the complaint, then whether there were other reasons, you might fail as a matter of proof. But at this stage, you made 
the allegation that you say should get you through the door? It is a pleadings case, and we believe it should be sufficient to give these railroad workers their day in court. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. Uh, Ms. Pillard? Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the court. Our position is that Section 510 is not limited to pension rights or rights capable of vesting, but also covers rights to welfare benefits. The Court of Appeals holding to the contrary can't be squared with the language of the statute. Section 510 uses the general term employee benefit plans, which the statute defines to include both pension plans and welfare benefit plans. Well, the respondent seems to pretty well agree with, with this much of your argument. What do you do with my hypothetical case? Just a clean-cut example of trying to cut costs, among others, by welfare, but, you know, by, by having contracting out to save the, the money there. That's clearly an economic motive. There were, and there were no vested benefits in the sense there were no unpaid medical bills based on injuries that already occurred. In our view, generally, that situation would not uh, show proof of the prohibited purpose. Uh, with one caveat, if the choice of uh, the employees uh, whose jobs were being contracted out were based on the fact that they, w they were a group of employees who were imminently going to vest or who the employer knew were ill, for example, as a result of, as a result of an well, industrial accident. Of that, none of that. Pure economic. Everybody is healthy at the time of the decision is made, but it's just a little cheaper to do it this way. Um, in our view, that would not be covered. Um, what is covered, however, and what we believe is a core case, is a case of uh, a person who the employer knows has become ill and who is fired before that person has seen the doctor and therefore before the right uh, to medical care has actually accrued. This happens all the time? This, this is a very common scenario where an uh, employer has offered health care coverage with uh, particular coverage levels. And uh, when, an, when an employee becomes ill, um, although the employer would be free generally to amend the plan to eliminate coverage for an illness that, that seemed too expensive or burdensome, instead the employer keeps the plan in place with respect to other employees but discharges the employee uh, to interfere with the attainment of the right to claim coverage under the plan. If, if, if you told me those are real-life situations that happen often, you, you've answered a question I was about to ask. That is, I, I was, I, I understand that the text covers uh, uh, health plans as well as other plans, but I couldn't really understand what real-life situation they were addressing because That's I didn't know, you know, the, the Chief Justice gave a hypothetical of a, of a company that has a health plan, but you, you only come under it after one year. I, I'm not, you know, I don't think... I don't know of any that exists like that. Uh, you could create one. But I was trying to figure out what Congress had in mind bringing these other things in, and, and it's this situation that you or just for, Or, for example, an employee who has a child with a serious heart condition, and the employer knows that to take care of that child is going to cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of health care. Now, if that happens, does that cause the employer's premiums to go up? basically? It might with an experience-related plan. That's right. And so the employer might have a motive to get rid of the employee who has a child that would cost a lot of um, health care benefits. That's, a, that's exactly right. The and motive, that does happen. And, and that motive would arise uh, even with the prospect of the medical care being undergone and therefore before the right had itself accrued and become an enforceable right it under the plan. It wouldn't be a violation, if I understand your interpretation correctly, it wouldn't be a violation if you fire the employee after the child has already received some benefits. Or if you fire the employee who himself has a serious condition 
after he's already gotten some of the benefits. That would be a violation, that Justice Scalia, under the uh, first clause of Section 510, which prohibits discharge for the purpose uh, um, as a result of, of exercising a right. Of exercising a right. Huh? I hope we can get to this case, because the examples you've been given of retaliation or discharging a particular employee, because that employee is going to cost too much. There are a number of court of appeals cases dealing with that discrimination. But here we have something different. We have not we're going to discharge uh, employee A because we've heard he has a heart disease. It is en masse. It is faceless. It says all of the workers in this unit go, and then we're going to have a subcontract. Now that's quite different than what Congress had in mind when it says don't fire the guy just before his pension vests. And you say that same thinking transposes to, uh, to health and welfare benefits. But what about the significant difference that this isn't a case about discharging a particular employee? That's right, Justice Ginsburg, and I do want to get to this case, but I would note that um, as a prudential matter, we don't think the court should reach the alternative grounds because they were not argued in the Court of Appeals. They were not decided by that court. They weren't raised in the petition, and they were not briefed in the, in the brief in opposition. And Aren't they troubling? Isn't that issue troubling thoughts all over the land? In, in fact, there's very little development on the issue in the Courts of Appeals, and so that's one of the reasons that we think well, the court need not reach that issue, but, but I do want to address that but, on, but the, on the, the question presented certainly covers that issue. As if, as it, I think you're right, that it is encompassed, it's fairly encompassed within the question presented. Um, if we accept the argument, assuming that, and if we accept the argument or the distinction that I thought you were drawing before, uh, that distinction seemed to be that, that the, at least with respect to welfare benefits, uh, violation or not turned on whether there was a specific employee in mind, whether there was a specific uh, accrual of benefit in mind. And if that's the case, then I suppose what the employer did here would be would be perfectly permissible under the statute. Justice, in our view, the core case uh, includes the case where the employer has a specific employee in mind, but it also includes our case. Uh, it's important to note that that the Court of Appeals. Well, if it, includes, if it includes our case, then then why do we bother about the the, the specificity of the employee? It's important to note that the Court of Appeals held that there was a claim for interference with pension benefits without any additional allegations right. beyond the general right. allegation of purpose. And if that's enough on that side without a targeting or identification of an individual employee, we submit that it should be uh, enough on this side. Now, what, what we have here so the is the argument of the individual is not essential to the, to the answer, right? Right. right. Okay. Although we have here uh, at the pleading stage, we don't have the, the facts developed, and so it's very difficult to say what kind of proof would suffice to be proof of purpose. Really, a lot of the discussion about whether targeting is required or, or a foreseeable rising cost is required is a, a discussion that really goes to what counts as proof of purpose, whereas here we're at the pleading well, stage. Given that, um, I, 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 I thought you answered Justice Stevens at yeah. the outset that if for sheer cost standpoints, because welfare benefits were expensive, these employees uh, were, were terminated, the work was sent elsewhere that that would not be a violation. And I want to know, what is the test that you have that leads you to give him that answer? Our test is that the um, purpose has to be a purpose to, to interfere with the attainment of benefits in the sense that the action has to be taken um, not uh, just in spite of its impact on benefits, but because of its impact on benefits. There has to be a specific focus on benefits. Now, let me focus on this case. Well, but that, it seemed to me Justice Stevens' case sure, that's covered that. Purpose. In my hypothetical, that was the whole purpose. 
not to focus on benefits as such. Here you have a situation. Well, his hypothetical was the benefits are expensive. Right. And they and, took the people and they said, we can't afford these things. That's right. And there's a general desire to, to save costs and where the incidental effect of that, where the employer is indifferent as between saving those costs out of benefits or saving those costs in other ways through greater efficiency or through diminution in salary or what have you. No, but that's changing that's Justice Stevens' hypo. He, uh, Justice Stevens' hypo, as I understood it, was the only reason is to save these costs. He may not wish his employees ill, perhaps, but his only reason is to save the cost. Right. Now, you can't, you can't split it as fine, it seems to me, in his case as you're trying to do. Here, here you have more, Justice Souter. Here you have a situation in which the employer had promised to continue to pay benefits at a certain level for a year. And, and Under the CBA. Right, what has the CBA got to do with the meaning of 510? It has to do with the violation of the CBA. What's it got to do with it? It has to do with this. The, the, the section does not cover any conceivable rights to which an employee may become entitled in the future, but it does cover the situation in which the employee has a concrete expectation. In the individual case, that concrete expectation is supplied by the fact that the plan is continuing with respect to the other employees, and that expectation drops out when the plan is legitimately amended. In this case, the concrete expectation is provided by the fact that the employer has, has bargained with, has promised the employees that it will continue the coverage for an additional year. Why is the expectation more concrete simply because this, there happens also to be a CBA? Why isn't there an equally concrete expectation We simply establishes the plan and says, you work for me, you get the benefits of the plan? There's not that concrete expectation precisely because where action is taken with respect to the whole workforce, the plan could simply be terminated. And in fact, if the employer wanted to protect itself as a formal matter, maybe it wouldn't terminate the plan and then fire the employees or lay the employees off. Here you have a situation that was structured to strip these employees of the rights no, they would have had for additional years. Sorry, your time has expired, and I expect you to sit down when I tell you your time has expired. I, I apologize, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Holsauer, we'll hear from <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioners claim that Santa Fe violated Section 510 of ERISA by contracting out work in order to reduce benefit costs, exactly as uh, Justice Stevens presented in his hypothetical. Assuming uh, for now that those allegations were correct, uh, they do not state a claim under Section 510 of ERISA. Section 510 should not be interpreted to require employers to ignore a very real element of labor costs when they make fundamental business decisions about the scope and nature of their operation uh, and whether they're going to do work uh, in-house or, or subcontract work, uh, whether they're going to uh, uh, have something done at all or, or decide to close a particular operation. The language of the statute Mr. Holzhauer, you take the position that the employer may decide that uh, the cost of, of welfare benefits uh, under the Railway Labor Workers Act is just too expensive. And if we can uh, get rid of that whole uh, requirement, uh, we'll be better off economically. And so we'll, we'll um, have this termination here. That's correct, Your Honor. And that, uh, that is not prohibited by Section 510. That's correct. The, the, the employer here, uh, an employer can determine that uh, its obligation to continue or its benefit costs, no matter where they're, they're from, um, are too expensive, and we found out that we can subcontract the work and, and reduce those costs. Uh, that, that does not violate Section 510. So what do we do with the attainment, for the purpose of interfering with the attainment of any right language in 510? Well, the, the attainment language, uh, interfering with the attainment of any right to which a participant may become entitled, mm -hmm. uh, talks about 
becoming eligible, or in, in our view, refers to becoming eligible, arriving at, attaining a ripe old age is the way blacks defined it, uh, citing some old cases, uh, reaching or, or becoming eligible for, for a benefit. And in Section 510, like elsewhere in ERISA, attain and attainment are used regularly to talk about attaining a particular age, attaining a years of service, attaining a qualification that's necessary to become eligible for a benefit. So the act has to, the, the act has to be specific to the employee? In other words, if it is specific to the employee, A is about to become 60 years old, B is about to have a tooth extracted, whatnot, that, that is the kind uh, of, of attainment that you're talking about here, and therefore the line is drawn between uh, acts uh, intended to, in effect, to preclude benefits to specific individuals as opposed to acts on a more global scale. Is I, that where you draw the line? I think that's generally correct, although I would say this. First of all, I think the, the, the tooth extraction case might come under the exercising part of Section 510. Uh, but in the Third Circuit case, the Gavilek case, uh, the court determined that uh, the employer decided that a large group of employees at one plant were about to become vested at one point or, or were subject to vesting uh, and, and were about to reach the vesting point, which is possible considering that vesting is over time and it might be a plant that was just open five years ago. Uh, under those circumstances, I think a, an argument, a strong argument can be made that Section 510 has been violated even though the, the decision's not on an individual basis. Well, I, I don't see how, how this squares with your attainment argument. You, you begin by saying uh, attain means that you're about to reach something. This is the Black's Law Dictionary. Uh, but, but then you said, now, of course, this doesn't apply to, a, 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 you have a wisdom tooth hypothetical or Justice O'Connor's hypothetical of a, of, of a very expensive uh, particular case. Uh, supposing that that uh, employee was receiving benefits, uh, he or she had, had uh, attained uh, the right in, in that sense, and the employer terminates in, in order to avoid the coverage. Well, I think that could quite likely be a violation of the exercising clause uh, of Section 510. Uh, the attainment clause talks about attaining rights to which the participant may become entitled. And I think that's another future-oriented kind of, uh, kind of reference in that provision. Clearly, it would violate Section 510 uh, to fire someone because they filed a claim, an expensive claim relating to having their, their wisdom teeth. Is it equally clear? Let me just be sure I get one thing clear. Sure. That if you took my hypothetical and said instead of health benefits, we're concerned that 90% that of these people are about to reach 20 years of service and therefore have vested benefits, and you took out the whole division and substituted with contract, that would clearly violate it, would it not? That would be correct. I think vesting, uh, the maximum period for vesting now is 10 years in a multi-employer uh, between five and, and eight and other plants. But if, if it was on the cliff of vesting, and you said, everybody in that plant, this plant we just opened five years ago, and everybody in that plant is about to vest, and therefore I'm going to close that plant and maybe open it up again next week or subcontract out the work or whatever, I think that would be a Section 510 violation. Now, Justice Kennedy, in your question, the, the person that had the, the, the tooth extracted uh, clearly would violate Section 510, the exercising clause, to fire him because he filed the claim. Um, I think a strong argument can be made that if the employer sees him coming down the hall with his claim form and a stack of medical bills with it, uh, it might violate 510 then as well, and it might violate 510, the exercising clause, uh, if the employee, employer knew that that employee has a particular illness or a particular condition uh, that's going to require or has already required um, uh, uh, large expenditures or benefits. But that's not what we have here. What we have here is something very close, as, as counsel for uh, petitioners acknowledged, to Justice Stevens' hypothetical. Uh, an employer who decides that benefit costs are too high. Right, but why is that any different? I mean, that, that, that's just like a lot of individual people who are submitting too many claims. It's not like a lot of you said, you, you said earlier that if you have a lot of indi individual people who are about to vest, right. 
that would be a violation if you close down that plant. Why is it any different if you close down a plant? Because you have a lot of individual people who have already vested and are just sucking the, the, the money out of the com uh, company with a lot of claims. The reason why I think the, the uh, gavelic kind of situation uh, where people are about to vest is different is because it focuses on the fact that a large number of people are about to obtain eligibility for a benefit. It's not that they're... The exercise clause as well, as you've just acknowledged. It's there not is, just that clause, there's also the exercise There clause. is an exercising clause here, and, and uh, perhaps one could make an argument that if a particular group of employees were exercising their benefits in a way that were different from other groups or, or, or so forth, but here what you have is a, is a group that said, Benefits are just too expensive. Uh, I'm not going to pay those benefits, or I'm not going to pay that richer benefit program. I'm going to subcontract out work because subcontracting at work is going to reduce my benefit costs. Um, Suppose Joe Jones uh, is a person who uh, the employer looks one day and says, I'm afraid that fellow is going to get wisdom teeth pulled out. And before he even thinks about it, I'm going to cancel this benefit in his plan, which is there, before he gets the wisdom tooth problem. Haven't, hasn't the employer fired him or canceled the benefit or sent him somewhere else in order to prevent him from attaining a right that he otherwise would have under the plan. No, no, Why no, not? he hasn't. Uh, attainment of a right to which an employee or participant may become entitled to, uh, that language and, and using that language and considering that language in light of the, the, the particular context Congress was concerned with refers to uh, becoming eligible for a benefit. Is there any reason, assuming you could, you could read it either way and I mean, I don't think it's contrary to English to say, I have a right to $2,000 of dental expenses if I get wisdom teeth pulled out. Mm -hmm. And my employer, before I have any toothache, says I'm going to fire him. I don't want him to get that. I think in English you could say he's fired me to prevent me from obtaining or attaining, yeah. obtaining. You can do it. Yes. So, I mean, you have to, it's more natural to say obtaining a right. Yes. But you could say attaining a right. It's not English, not bad English, so if, if, if I think it's fairly good English or reasonable English, is there any reason Congress wouldn't have wanted to protect me in such a situation? Well, first of all, I think that, that, that slip from attaining or obtaining is very interesting, because I think that is one of the differences between the kind of language we're using here. Congress was concerned about a particular uh, circumstance, and we know that uh, the language might not be limited to that circumstance, but becoming eligible for pension benefits uh, and vesting on pension benefits. Um, whether the exercise clause might uh, might help that employee, uh, I mean, why, sure. why why wouldn't as long as you know? I mean, these things are written in Congress. The lawyers all look at them, and 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 so they might have talked a lot about pensions, but they would have thought it applies to welfare too. Well, it applies. Unless there's some reason, why, and it applies in my situation, the toothache but, situation. Now, now, it, unless there's some reason why it wouldn't, why wouldn't it? Well, it applies in, in, in welfare situations. There's a very strong reason why it wouldn't apply in, in your kind of situation. I think the same reason that it wouldn't apply in the situation that's before the court. Uh, employees uh, are not prohibited by ERISA, or should not be prohibited by ERISA, from making legitimate cost-based economic decisions. And, and that's reflected in ERISA itself, the debates over ERISA, and the, the court's decisions over ERISA. ERISA involved the balancing of interests, particularly in the welfare uh, well, plan. And then what they've said, I just would like sure. your response on that point. Because sure, you have a point. It was made to Congress, and so Congress passes a statute, say you're worried about money, cancel the plan, go through steps A, B, and C, reduce well, the benefits. But what we don't want you to do is this other way of trying to achieve a similar result, firing everybody, rehiring them, that's a burden for you. You have some burdens and you have some benefits. It's a compromise. 
Well, of course, there's nothing in Section 510 that talks about uh, saying uh, employers being required to amend or terminate plans. But in many situations, that's not going to be practically possible. Uh, we might have a situation, for example, where an employer's obligations under a collective bargaining agreement require the employer to pay benefits, and it's not going to be able to unilaterally amend or terminate their plan. But that collective bargaining agreement might also provide that the employer is entitled to subcontract work, or the National Labor Relations Act might give them the right to subcontract work. Same thing happens with wages. So, so if you want to have this right, you work it out with the union. I mean, that's normal. Sure. Well, and right. that, that, bring that, it up that, on the table, say what uh, we can do, amend the plan. Why, why, uh, why is it a problem for the employer? I mean, I understand what they sure. like. Well, in some circumstances, the, uh, the employer uh, might also take this position with regard to wages. Uh, the, the union contract sets a certain wage, but allows the employer to subcontract. Uh, the employers, the, the collective bargaining agreement sets certain benefits, but the employer is allowed to subcontract, or the National Labor Relations Act gives a procedure or a mechanism for, for subcontracting at work. There are other circumstances where it makes no sense to, uh, to amend or terminate a plan. Often insurance contracts, if it's an insured plan, will provide that we want to cover all your employees. We don't want you to carve out little groups of employees because we're afraid you might do it in a way uh, that's to our disadvantage, or we just want the big business or no business at all. Under those circumstances, the, uh, the employer may not be able to to amend or terminate. It also might not solve the situation at all in a variety of circumstances. Suppose an employer had two different plants and it had to decide which one to close. They both had health insurance benefits, but one was very costly and one was less costly, perhaps because of the region of the country they were in. Under those circumstances, that would be a violation of Section 510 to make that decision based on uh, benefit costs, if you follow the petitioner's argument, uh, but it would be just a legitimate economic decision based on, uh, on what's more expensive for the employer. There's no evidence in, in the legislative history of ERISA, and there's certainly no requirement, even if we can flip from attain to obtain and, and argue that that clause can be read much more broadly than it is, uh, there's certainly no requirement in, in Section 510, no language that would dictate that we reach a result that would require employers to ignore very real economic costs that they face and, and costs that, that, that employers base very similar decisions on on every day. Mr. Holzhauer, I take it from your argument, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the reasoning you've just developed, motive simply to cut costs, not to retaliate against any employer, employees, would apply to pensions that haven't yet vested, as well as health and welfare arrangements. Is that right? It would apply to pension benefits generally, in the sense that suppose we had a, a workforce that uh, had vested pensions, or not vested pensions, but we're just accruing pension benefits relatively over time. There was no circumstance where we were focusing on people who were about to vest. But we just decided that the benefit costs of that plan are too expensive, and the benefit costs we were concerned about in that plan were pension benefits. Under those circumstances, I still say that that would not violate Section 510. So you're rejecting the, the Ninth Circuit line in two ways. First, you say that there isn't this distinction between pension plans and health and welfare plans. Yeah. Yeah. And that as far as the pension plan goes, the Ninth Circuit was wrong, although you didn't take a cross-appeal. Well, the Ninth Circuit held, in, again, the Ninth Circuit's treatment of both of these issues is rather cursory, so it's really hard to understand exactly what their reasoning was. But quoting Ingersoll Rand, uh, the Ninth Circuit held that, held that 510 protects planned participants from termination motivated by an employer's desire to prevent a pension from vesting. Santa Fe saw no need to cross-petition on that issue because it's quite confident that when it goes back on remand, it's going to be able to show that it didn't take any action to prevent pensions from vesting. 
And we thought that, it's that that's what the court talked about as the pension part of 510 uh, on remand will be fine. Uh, if, uh, if, if, they're looking, if they're using the term more broadly than they said they were using, the same, same argument would apply. Now, Section 510 was adopted as a corollary to ERISA's vesting requirement, uh, which was central to the statutory scheme put in place uh, by Congress. And for the first time, Congress required that pension benefits become non-forfeitable after a set period of time. Um, Congress recognized that employers might circumvent that vesting requirement uh, by discharging employees who were about to become vested, uh, and they installed Section 510 to deal with, with that problem. Um, it makes perfect sense in that context to say it protects you, the attainment clause of Section 510 protects you until you become eligible for the benefits, but doesn't provide you with meaningful protection thereafter, although the exercising clause might. Well, do you say that it covers the individual situation where the employer uh, foresees that a given employee is going to be very costly in terms of medical care, either the employee or a member of the employee's family? If the employee is already eligible for those benefits, and... Well, the employee is covered by right. a right. health plan. The employee has a child, mm -hmm. and the child then is diagnosed as having a very serious medical condition that is going to cost mm -hmm. mega mm -hmm. And the employer says, I don't want to have that yeah. effect on my health costs. Yeah. You're out of here. Yeah. I think under those circumstances, the employer would already be eligible for those benefits if there was a violation not eligible but will become no. eligible when the child goes to the doctor I think for, for surgery. I think the attainment clause talks about whether the employer, the employee will become eligible for health insurance, will become eligible for dental insurance, will become eligible for a pension or a vested pension. Under The way I interpret Section 5... Just answer my question. Sure. Under that circumstance, is Section 510 violated if the employer says... You're fired because I don't want that obligation in the future. Yes. Uh, the exercising clause could be violated by that. The attainment clause, no. Uh, I don't believe that would involve the attainment clause because that would not involve becoming eligible for benefits. I also disagree with... I'm not with sure that the exercise clause would kick in either because the child hasn't gone to the hospital for the surgery yet. Well, I think that a strong argument can be made, and that's not involved in this case at all, but a strong argument can be made, certainly, that well, clearly it would violate Section 510 to fire that employee just after they filed that claim because they filed an expensive claim. Um, can an employer circumvent the exercising clause by doing it just before they file the claim? I think one can make a strong argument that it would. I also strongly disagree with the, the, the government's representation that that hypothetical is in any sense real. Uh, the reality of that hypothetical ignores COBRA benefits. Uh, an employer, once an employee is terminated, uh, the employee generally is entitled to COBRA benefits, which will keep insurance in place. But they're not, they get often less than what the plan would give. Often, they, more often than they get exactly what the plan gives. The, the most common uh, COBRA benefits is exactly the health insurance that they get. They don't get the other kinds of benefits, but they would get the health insurance. Uh, and that's well, that's given your, your response to, to Justice O'Connor's questions, what, what, of what use is the application of the attainment clause to uh, uh, to plans other than uh, pension plans? Uh, Justice Scalia, um, earlier you, you asked whether it was ever uh, whether it was common to have plans uh, right. that allow you to get health insurance after being there for a year. Uh, 
yeah. or after getting uh, after passing a probationary period, which right. might be 90 days. It's very common. Uh, that's common throughout industry, and, and, and that could very well be, be the kind of situation. An employee often has to work a certain period of time in the sense of hours per week or hours over an accumulated period of time in order to become a full-time employee for benefits purposes. Uh, it could violate Section 510's attainment clause to stop somebody from working over that threshold. Do you think now. that's what Congress was worried about, that there are a lot of employers who, who keep people... I think Congress... Days with, I think, firing people after 89 days? I think Congress was concerned about vesting pension benefits. Uh, but Congress talked about employee benefit plans, and I think there, are, there could be analogous circumstances uh, under which uh, Section 510's attainment clause would apply to welfare benefits as well, and that's one very analogous. But you insist it applies only to eligibility. Attaining to eligibility. Then why, do you, why, in answer to Justice O'Connor, did you get into the question of circumvention? You've either attained or you haven't attained. I was talking about circumventing the exercise clause. Exercise clause. Yes. If, if we allow that the, that the exercise clause can be circumvented, how do we draw uh, that, that, that circumvention of the exercise clause uh, would, would state a violation? How do we draw the line? Why doesn't that swallow the, uh, the, the, the attainment? Well, I think the exercising clause was intended uh, to deal with a kind of individual, not global plan, uh, uh, plant closing or plan design um, situation, but an individual situation where you were focusing and targeting a particular individual and saying, that person's going to be too expensive. I am going to terminate that person because their benefits are too high. Uh, clearly, it does violate the exercising clause by any reading to do that after the employee has started firing those benefits. So he's exercised his right to benefits too much, I'm going to, to fire him uh, as, a, as a consequence of doing that. Uh, the question is whether in those same circumstances where you're looking at an individual employee uh, who's about to file a lot of claims because he has bad wisdom teeth or he has other problems, um, uh, whether that would violate uh, the exercising clause of Section 510. I think an argument can be made that it would. So do it on the specific employee. The specific employee rather than on a global cost-based organizational change. Uh, what was going on in this case was a fundamental change in the way Santa Fe uh, operated its business. It was no longer going to be using its own employees to do that work. It was subcontracting that work out to, to, other, uh, to other employees. Which clauses it covers if I, my pension benefits vested, yep. I'm entitled to it, right. and by the way, if I work two more years and have a, a promotion, it doubles in amount. So they fire me, so I don't get the doubling in amount. Now, which which part of the is that enough? Fail exercise clause is that well, failure to attain a benefit, or do you think they could do it? I, I think that there certainly there are circumstances. I, I, generally speaking, pension benefits are required under the statute to uh, to accrue rateably over time, not to have these kinds of cliffs uh, in, in which you're entitled under the plan uh, to additional money. Uh, See what I'm driving. Yeah, there are circumstances. For example, I think the Heath case was one of those uh, in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, where an employee was entitled to early retirement, additional benefits, uh, if they reached a certain age. And I think that uh, he would become eligible for those benefits if they stayed on the workforce. Once you say, and the court did say there, That's right. it's an attainment matter. That's an attainment and Therefore, the normal thing in, in getting an amount of money when a certain event happens under a plan that has vested, at least in the pension area, seems to be to call it an attainment. Right. Well, if you follow the same reasoning here, you're going to say, getting that amount of money under a plan that has vested when the toothache occurs. No, no, we're not talking about getting that amount of money. We're talking about becoming eligible for a new oh, benefit. Right. An employee who was uh, not entitled to an early retirement benefit. Right. Did you have something you wanted to say about purpose? Because the, 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 uh, 
uh, only reason I ask that is that seems to have come up, and, and I'm not certain we should reach it here, but I know it's been argued, yeah. and, and uh, maybe it would be better to do it with facts or with a Mikey or whatever, but if you could make a point about it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the purpose of the overall statute was to deal with, with the vesting uh, circumstance and then to prevent people from circumventing someone from vesting. And I think when there are analogous circumstances, like someone about to become eligible for early retirement benefits, uh, under those circumstances, uh, that would be a similar eligibility threshold, and crossing that eligibility threshold would, would, would be involved. Uh, but nothing like that is going on here. This is a no, global cost saying that the D.C. Circuit approach in the Andes case, they didn't even need to get to anything like, what does the word discharge mean? Yes, I, I agree with that. I, I found that decision puzzling because the court said, on the one hand, these employees weren't discharged, and we didn't, uh, Congress didn't use the words layoff and termination uh, in that case. Uh, but then it said that, well, there might be some circumstances where a particular attribute of that workforce might call into play. I assume they were referring to the Gavilet case or that kind of hypothetical in their, in their situation, where it would apply. Well, if it's not a termination to uh, subcontract out work under these circumstances, how would it be a termination or discharge under, under those second set of circumstances? I think the D.C. Circuit was struggling with what several other courts have struggled with, is how to fit Section 510 uh, how to square Section 510 with these kinds of fundamental business changes, cost-based changes uh, that employers ordinarily do. I mean, this is very much like uh, the kind of change uh, that Peter Drucker talked about in his Wall Street Journal article some years ago, Sell the Mailroom. These kinds of changes are not the kind of thing that, that ERISA was intended to, uh, would to your, interpret. Would your attainment to test have uh, resolved the Andis case in favor of the employer? Yes, it would have. Yes, it would have. I wonder, because in paragraph 30, they specifically argue or allege that benefits for, they, they suffered a reduction of benefits from their pension plan and health and welfare plans. There's that allegation in the complaint. Yes. And how do you, I mean, if that's true, that's a vested right that was... Well, they, they claim that they've suffered uh, welfare, and they, they claim that they were, um, uh, that, that Santa Fe took this action in order to reduce a wide spectrum of benefits, salary, vacation, sick leave benefits, things that are not ERISA included. Cases of individual. Well, they, they talk, well, I, I don't think it does. I don't think the pleading covers individuals. It talks about terminating welfare and pension. Suffered uh, a reduction benefits. of contributions to right. and benefits from pension plans and health and welfare plans. Right. What they were talking about is the fact that under the the, the new ITS Teamsters contract, uh, there was a reduction in contributions. Well, but they say benefits. And a, a commensurate reduction in benefits, but it was not uh, something that interfered with their attainment of eligibility for a particular category of benefits. Well, that's the difference between you and the government, how you read that paragraph, I guess. Well, it could be, but I think if you look at the entire complaint, you look at what's, what petitioners have said in their briefs and in this argument, it's clear that basically what this case comes down to is, is the hypothetical you raised early on in the argument. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Holzhauer. The case is submitted.